Well, good morning. Thanks for joining us this morning in person, online, wherever you are. And take your Bibles and turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 3 again. 1 Timothy chapter 3, a very important passage. If you're here and would like to uh, look, use the Bibles in front of you, it pay, it's page 961, 961. Everyone has probably been a passenger in a car with someone you wish wasn't driving at some point. Uh, maybe you've seen them get angry at other drivers or look at their phone a few too many times or they're too proud to pull over when they're sleepy or maybe they even drive sometimes after a few too many drinks. but. As long as they're in the driver's seat, you're not comfortable, you're not feeling safe. The same thing can be true in a church if the men in the driver's seat don't have qualities that make you feel safe. Are they easily angered? Are they easily distracted by peripheral issues? Are they impulsive? Do they have self-control? Uh, today, as we look at this passage, we will be looking at a list of qualifications that the Apostle Paul shared with two of his trusted co-workers, Timothy and Titus. There are similar lists in both books of the New Testament, very similar, in fact. And it describes the qualities because the answer to this problem is to make sure that when you're selecting elders and deacons who are in the driver's seat of a church that there are qualities that would cause you to be men you trust. The reason this is so important is because the church is so important. It's at the end of these two lists, elders and deacons qualifications, that in verse 15, Paul explains that the church is the church of the living God. So we represent God here on earth, the church does. We are the pillar and foundation of truth, so if the world's going to understand and know truth, it's going to be through us. And so it's so important that the leaders of the church have character, because if there's not character, the leaders fail. If the leaders fail, the church fails, and if the church fails, truth is undermined or lost to the world that needs it. So we're going to reread uh, verses 1 through 3. This is our second uh, time kind of looking through this, but we're now looking at different characteristics than we did uh, in the first part earlier. Here is a trustworthy saying, if anyone sets his heart on being an overseer, it's another word for elder in a church, he desires a noble task. It's a good thing. Now the overseer must be above reproach, the husband of but one wife, temperate, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not given to drunkenness, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. We'll go that, that far for now. This is describing elders. It's describing really the goal for all men. It really is character that for the most part applies to us all. Uh, last time we looked at the broader statements, and we saw three things about elders in a church. One is they desire to
to do it, so they are ministry-minded men. Secondly, we saw that they were uh, above reproach, kind of a general umbrella statement that, that as someone would know them, there's not like holes in their character that people could look at and say, but, but what about that? Ministry-minded, above reproach, and then the husband of one wife, along with, we looked at verses 4 and 5 about managing the family and the children and those kind of things, because family is a, is a practice field, really, for church leadership as well. The traits we look at today, there are 11 of them, are the more the details of the list, and I've kind of categorized them. The first seven are those that are more internal, things that you can't really see, and the other four are then where you begin to see the character and uh, the, the abilities, the, the qualifications of this man by what he does as well. Let's look at the first three. There's a lot of overlap in these statements. In the middle of verse 2, it says, my, my translation says, temperate, self-controlled, respectable. In fact, some of our translations almost exchange some of the words for which way you translate a Greek term. But it's about being self-controlled, if we were to try to summarize it. The first term, I have temperate, is literally a term, it's an alcohol term that would literally mean does not drink. Now, I don't think it's actually addressing the drinking issue. That is addressed later on when it says not given to drunkenness. Here it's being used more as a character quality of self-control to say that this man, unlike the one who's drunk is one who has his mental and emotional self under control. I think it has a lot to do with anger issues. The temper is under control. The temper is temperate. So instead of people controlling him and making him angry, you know how there's certain people that just kind of bring that out in you. Instead of circumstances bringing out that anger issue, No, this person has developed a character trait of self-control. It's supernatural, by the way. Galatians 5.23 says that self-control is a fruit of the Spirit. It's something that needs to be progressively developed. So the question to ask ourselves is, do certain people make us react in a way that pulls out that sinful anger character issue? Do do certain circumstances expose that sinful tendencies the wrench slips the computer stalls you lose the game I remember years ago when my sister was dating someone and I think it was college years uh, the last date I think she had with him was he came over to play some board games with us the way he lost really told you everything you would need to know. We don't like to lose or get hurt or whatever it is. Uh, Feelings are normal. Self-control is supernatural. God is developing a trait of self-control so that when these circumstances or people walk into our lives, we are prepared because it's a supernatural thing he's doing for us. Temperate. Second term. Another kind of self-control. In fact, my translation says self-control. You might have the word sober. It has, contr- has to do with controlling your emotions. And 
a lot of places that could go, but it, it seems to emphasize the ability to be serious. Not everything's a joke. Now, humor is great. I think Jesus had a sense of humor. When, when Jesus would tell parables, there are sometimes some laughable exaggerations. Can you picture putting a camel through an eye of a needle? You know, when you, see, when you hear Jesus say that, some people just try to get real serious and try to, try to interpret what that means when probably it's a hyperbole, exaggeration, kind of like it brings a chuckle. Uh, I'm surely guilty of being the dad joke guy of the family by default. I consider it a victory if eyes roll, but at least one person actually laughs out loud. A double victory if it's Priscilla. But, um, but sometimes, of course, we need to be serious because life is serious. Um, humor can be used to avoid or deflect real issues. You find yourself doing that sometimes, make, make a little joke about it because you don't really want to talk about it. But a leader in a home, a leader in a church, needs to know when to be serious. Even though I am convinced that humor reveals often a good sense of graciousness, we got to know where we are. What, what is the situation? Sober or serious. Third one here is respectable, mine says. I would summarize this by saying he has a filter. Okay? Good behavior, some translations say. Good, he knows what to say or do so that people are not uncomfortable around him. In fact, the word respectable is actually the word cosmos, meaning the world of the universe, probably giving you the picture of how the solar system works and the, the, the sun stays here. And, and it's remarkable how you, we, we've all heard how if the earth went out of orbit a little bit, you know, we'd all freeze to death or we'd all burn up because there is order in the way God does things. And, and likewise, our life should be predictable enough that people aren't cringing you know around us by what we'll do the other time that this term is used in the new testament is actually in the previous chapter if you remember in chapter 2 verse 9 it says i want women to dress modestly that word modestly is to be dressed properly predictably you could say not extremely flashy or revealing but something appropriate respectable for the men, the issue here is not about clothing, but um, appropriate behavior. He, he knows what not to say. He knows how he comes across. If he's a man that you kind of just cringe because you just don't know what he's going to say next, it's not a good leadership quality. So temperate, serious, Respectable, he has a filter. Self-control is essentially strength under control. Self-control does not mean weak and passive. You have engines in your cars and equipment, guys, that is strength, but the only reason it's valuable is because it's under control. You can, you can keep it channeled correctly because we've talked before how God has made us as men stronger in many ways more aggressive if you will you don't want a wimp leading at the job or the home or the church you need someone with courage we're designed to get it done but the downside of our aggressive strong nature is we can misuse that to 
to, to, to lash out, and it's only the Spirit of God who can tame our strength to bring it under control so it is most useful and not just controlled by the, the fleshly, the sinful nature. Temperate, self-controlled, respectable. For a moment, I'm going to skip over the hospitable and able to teach. We'll come back to that, these positive traits. To pick it up and look at verse 3 where there are four knots that help explain self-control. So if we understand temperate, serious, and, and respectable, then you'll have a, even a better picture by saying what it is not. Not given to drunkenness, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He's self-controlled, that is, in his lifestyle. Uh, Translations of that first one are different. Given to wine, uh, drunkenness, or uh, addicted to wine. It's, two, it's a compound word. The word wine preceded by the word near or with the preposition. He's near his wine. I mean, he stays close to a drink. If you see a picture of him, he's likely to be pictured with a drink. He knows where his drinks are. He knows when he's going to get his next drink. In other words, there is a problem. Solomon spoke of the problem. Chapter 20, wine is a mocker, beer is a brawler. Whoever is led astray by them is not wise. The relationships, things happen because of that substance. Proverbs 23 who has woe? Who has sorrow? Who has strife? Who has complaints? Those who linger over wine. If you think through that, it's, it's a person who is not emotionally dealing with things well. Sorrow. There's strife. There's relational problems, social problems. And then there's the, there's just, there's all kinds of negativity because of the wine or a way to cover up the negative problems in their life. Complaining, complaining. And this person tries to drown their sorrows instead of facing them, understanding there are character sins. And Solomon goes on. Solomon, of course, was a king. And he says, be careful that those things don't characterize leaders. It's not for kings to drink wine or for rulers to crave beer lest they drink and forget what the law decrees so they can lose their crucial influence they were designed to have. So don't choose leaders with a drinking problem. It's well documented that people who have a drinking problem often think they don't have a drinking problem. But the people around them who know them the best, they know it. They see it in their relationships, and if you wouldn't trust them driving the car... You don't really want them leading you either. In 2016, I think it was, a pastor of a large Bible-believing, Bible-teaching church with a significant positive ministry in the South, uh, the pastor needed to leave as he acknowledged a significant drinking problem, and the church suffers. A study came out in May of this year, from the University of Wisconsin. They did a, uh, a study of every county in the United States. I think this is important for us as Wisconsinites to understand. Every county in the United States, analyzing by whatever their criteria was, 
what percentage of the adults drank excessively, whatever their definition was. Here's the map that was produced. Wisconsin is the only state in which every county had an excess of 23% of the adults who drank to excess. You see the dark nature of Wisconsin. I think we have to acknowledge the culture we're in. We maybe need to move to Utah. (laughs) If the Spirit of God and those close to you would expose to you that you have a need, a problem in this area, whatever it costs you, in time, money, or humility, address it, because the people who love you most will thank you and respect you for it. Secondly, not violent, but gentle. The word violent is the word for striking. He, he, he reacts with his fists, literally, perhaps. This is the guy that charges the mound in the, in the baseball game, right? He, in the home, he might physically or at least verbally be abusive as a husband or a dad. And in church, he might not literally hit someone. But his ha- anger is an issue, and so people tend to fear him. He tends to control, and he, he begins to lose the respect. So the opposite is, he says, but gentle, this is it, merciful, gracious, tolerant, patient. You can make a mistake around him and not worry that they're going to jump down your throat. So it's the kind of person you want in a tense situation because if they do speak up, they're, they're going to maybe bring some calmness or peace to the situation. He's a gentle man, and he's a gentleman. You trust him, you feel safe. Thirdly, not quarrelsome. Not quarrelsome. You can comfortably discuss different opinions with him. A quarrelsome person is really good at arguing. He has verbal skills, he's smart, he wins. He has that, that zinger, that clinching argument at the end of the trial, right? But he's not a listener. Uh, he doesn't have the humility to understand that everything is not black and white, and everything for him is absolute, and he's absolutely right, just ask him. Our culture honors that, by the way. We, we want the lawyer who wins. So our, our, our culture is, is asking for, for that guy, and, and yet spiritual leaders are someone who can understand and hear where other people are coming from, even when we disagree. You might say, well, don't you want someone leading the church who is smart, verbal, and convincing? Trouble is, it often comes with a pride problem. It also often comes with some arrogance and, and doesn't make a great team player. And yet what you find in Scripture when it comes to elders is that elders is always plural. God designed not the the, the model, the corporate model we usually have of just the one guy and he makes everything he says goes, but rather this, this team of people because God in his wisdom knew our weaknesses and that nobody has it all right. And so we're going to make the best decisions when we make joint decisions and hearing one another. Shepherds listen so that if people have honest questions and doubts or wonder why something is a certain way, they can come to this person and not be put down. The quarrelsome person wins 
discussions that burns relationships. God looks for gracious leaders. Another sad example, um, I recently have been listening to a, a, a several-part podcast about a, another pastor of a significant ministry in the Northwest, large church, network of satellite churches, that had good doctrine, an amazing impact, fresh uh, approach to, to ministry. A lot of people came to faith in Christ. Books sold like crazy. Understand his sermons were downloaded more than any other pastor during a season of time. But a few years back, there was a fall. Now, a couple, years, a couple weeks ago, we mentioned that when pastors of large ministries uh, fail, and you see it in the news, the most common factor is moral failure. This was not a moral failure to our knowledge. It seems to have a healthy marriage. So what was it that ruined his ministry? A controlling, intolerant attitude, a pattern of bullying other leaders who disagreed, making extreme statements, you could say inappropriate, didn't have a good filter. There were a lot of people that were drawn to this blunt, tell it like it is style. But eventually enough of his elders united to confront him and he resigned and that large church and the satellite churches within months closed down affecting 10 to 15,000 worshipers and some have never returned once again the gospel is tarnished the fourth one not a lover of money not a lover of money because he clearly prioritizes eternal things over personal financial things the money issue is also high on the list of scandals. If, if something of churches pops up in the news, I saw in my news feed not that long ago, what's actually one of these clickbait things where um, it was the 25 wealthiest pastors in their lavish lifestyles, a picture of a jet, <laughs> broadcast ministries, and you know, evaluating the, the misuse of funds possibly. Not a lover of money. This did not say anything about how much money an elder could or should have. It is not about how much, it's rather about their compelling motive. Is it money or is it ministry? Is it earthly? Is it eternal? In fact, later in this study, uh, chapter 6, verse 10, there's a, there's, a, there's a section devoted to wealthier Christians, and there is no rebuke for them being wealthy, but there's the warning that the love of money is the root of all evil. Same uh, idea as, as here. My sister and I played a lot of Monopoly when we were kids. Um, you've, you've probably played at greenhouses, red hotels, park place rent. The idea of the game, of course, is to monopolize all the money and bankrupt the other person. It teaches great values. That's why board games are so good. Um, we would feel elated if we won and deflated if we lost. But just for a moment, because within minutes, know what you do? If you win, you take your big stack of money and the little bit of pittance that they just ran out of money, you put it all together and you put it back in the box. You got the hundreds and the fifties and the twenties, right? It's all over. And it doesn't really matter. And 
in many ways, we have to begin to look at money that way. Now, the, the balance is this, that God uses money as a sacred tool, one of his best. He uses us to te- use it to teach us to, to be faithful and work hard and to trust him and to learn generosity and to learn that we don't own it, we manage it for him. We, so many good things, but the reality is it's all for this life. And it all goes back in the box when we go to the box. And so the importance for a qualifying factor for an elder is, do they understand that priority? Do they have that priority? So Jesus said, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal, for, here it is, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Treasures in heaven, treasures on earth. We are citizens of heaven as believers in Christ. So as a spiritual leader of any kind, man or woman, home or church, do you have eternal priorities? And so the, the warning specifically to Elders, shepherds, in First Peter 5, be shepherds of God's flock that's under your care, watching over them, not because you must, but because you are willing. In other words, the same thing of wanting to be as God wants you to be, not pursuing dishonest gain. That'll, that'll ruin it, but eager to serve. The man you trust, you trust with money as well. So it's a matter of priority. Is, are, are we people who make every decision a financial decision, essentially? In other words, everything about you know, where we work, where we live, how we spend our time is, well, what would be best financially? Because obviously that's the right way to make the decision. Or is it? The reality is, reality is that this, that essential piece of generosity always means that you will have less. Though what God then does in response to that is his business, but a spiritual man or woman recognize it's all God's money. It's for this earth, and it'll all go back in the box. So we kind of get a flavor, don't we, of the character of the, of the man you want to lead and the person that probably we all must be. And so, so if, if the Holy Spirit is, is awakening you to some area of need... Are you sensitive to that as coming from God? Do you, do you know what he might be speaking to you about? Will you pray about that area for yourself? Will you seek help? Maybe sharing it, asking somebody else to pray for you and with you, because these are supernatural things. The Holy Spirit of God lives within you if you have put your faith in Jesus Christ. And so you are not trapped in your character. Don't ever believe that lie. It's not just the way you are. It is the way you are, and we all have our own different sinful tendencies, but the issue is what is God teaching us and how, where is God growing us? So character is who we are on the inside, or others have said character is who you are when you are alone, and that's a true statement. But while character is 
happening when no one's watching, people are watching. And there are myriads of ways, some of we've already mentioned, in which our character becomes known, seen, obvious by what we do. And so, uh, also in verse 3, and then in verses 6 and 7, we find, uh, rather 2 and then 6 and 7, we find that uh, it's not just the inside, but that a leader must also have a good reputation. Let's go back to verse 2 and pick up those two terms. Things that he's known for is that he is hospitable and able to teach. These are things that seems that happen mostly within the church family. They're not invisible. Hospitality is not invisible. The word hospitable here is another one of those interesting compound words. It's the word friend and the word stranger. They're a friend of strangers. In other words, they, they push out of their own comfort zones of the people they're most familiar and they most like and most comfortable with, but, but they become and they befriend strangers. Uh, I know it's more challenging for some personalities than others, but it is still a spiritual issue, an issue of maturity. Hospitable people in this specific area, one way is to share your home. That's how you can love strangers. And so it could refer to formal dinner invitations. Maybe you stop by for one thing, but you invite them in no matter what the living room looks like. You uh, offer lodging if they're from out of town. You maybe even uh, take someone in to live with you for a season. Uh, befriending strangers. I, I could name names of people who are really good at that at Open Door, but I won't embarrass anyone. But is someone willing to give up some of their private space? It was an obvious issue in that day, Old Testament and New Testament times alike. They didn't have Travelocity websites, so as you were traveling, if you arrived at a town where you didn't know anybody, you simply went to the village square, and culturally someone was obligated to take you home and take care of you. Scripture makes the point repeatedly, simply Romans 12, practice hospitality. Make it a part of your life. And do it with a good attitude. First Peter, for, offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Hebrews 13, 2. Do not forget, this is interesting, do not forget to show hospitality to strangers, for by so doing, some people have shown hospitality to angels without knowing it. It probably hasn't happened to any of us. But he's referring almost certainly to Genesis 18, where Abraham and Sarah, they had three visitors approach, and so they did the right thing, and they, Abraham got and killed a calf and prepared a meal. And turns out these three visitors, two of them were angels, and the other seems to actually be a theophany or a, a, a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ. That's how I, I'm understanding it. And so these were visitors from heaven who showed up and they came actually to bless Abraham and Sarah. That, that, that's when they came with the news that in spite of their old age, they're going to have a baby Isaac. I wonder, I wonder sometimes how many blessings we miss out on because we don't practice hospitality, offering it maybe to strangers. We're a largely private culture, probably compared to biblical times. Mostly it's our family and closest friends who will see the inside of our houses. Um, 
open door, we need to open our doors a little more freely, I think. Because there's nothing like eating with someone in your home to get to know them better personally and spiritually. In fact, maybe even this season we've had where, you know, during COVID we were, it was one of the big losses, I think, that we didn't show much hospitality to one another. Maybe it could be a big gain if it awakened us to the importance of that kind of a ministry. Hospitable, able to teach. Does everyone who's an elder need to be able to teach? Seems so, doesn't it? Does everyone who's an elder have to have the spiritual gift of teaching? Do they need to be impressive and admired and everybody wants to be in their Bible study? It doesn't say that. I've mentioned that uh, Titus, Titus chapter 1 has got the same parallel list as this. What's interesting is that the list of qualifications for elders in Titus 1 does not include able to teach as a statement. Instead, Paul uses the whole verse to describe what it means to be able to teach. Here it is. He must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught, so he knows truth, so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. That's all. Able to teach means not that you can necessarily preach sermons, you're going to be you know, the most regular, popular Bible class teacher, but you need to be learners and readers who know biblical truth enough. You can explain it to somebody. You could encourage somebody with it. Uh, you recognize if it's wrong. You could correct it if necessary. I'm grateful that all of our elders have been involved in the teaching teams of our adult Bible fellowships and that uh, all the men on our board have been men of the word who, who want to understand and know Scripture. Verse 6 covered verses 4 and 5 earlier about the family. This trait is also something that people would know about someone. He must not be a recent convert or he may become conceited and fall under the same judgment as the devil. The devil? Isaiah 14, one place where we find, about, find out about the fall of Satan when he went from being an angel to being the chief of the demonic world. You know what it was? It's when he said, I will be like the most high. Pride is ground zero for sin. That's where it all started. And God didn't take lightly to that for Satan, cast him out forever. But we should remember God doesn't take pride lightly. God exalts those who humble themselves, humbles those who exalt themselves, is a prevailing principle in our scriptures. So this is so important that the elder, the overseer, not be a recent convert, it says, because they could tend to be conceited or proud. The term elder implies some degree of age or at least maturity demonstrated by time and experience. So you could ask the question, how old was Timothy? Some of you may know chapter 4 verse 12 says, don't let anyone look down on you because you are young. So in some degree, Timothy was a young man. Does that mean he was a new convert? I don't think so. He most likely came to faith in Christ when Paul was first coming through his hometown of Lystra and um, maybe as a teenager. 
A.D. 48-49. A year or two later, Paul came on a second missionary journey, and by that time, Timothy was a young man that Paul says, you know what, I want to take him along and train him. This is maybe 13, 14, 15 years later that he has been serving with Paul, so he's not a recent convert, even though he might have been 30 or early 30s, depending on where this uh, sequence began. Paul's point is, don't make someone an elder in those first several adult years, no matter how much you like them, no matter how much, uh, how gifted they might be. Too many promising young men in ministry have flamed out when they got too much recognition. It could be that they were indeed, by their giftedness, able to handle responsibility, but takes time to see, can you handle the recognition of the position? God will humble us eventually if we do, so make sure as you think through who you're going to put into leadership that there is a sense of true, genuine, soft humility before God. So that's his reputation within the church, I would say, the hospitable, able to teach, not a new convert, but verse 7 has a very important additional trait. He must also have a good reputation with outsiders so that he will not fall into disgrace and into the devil's trap. The devil's trap would be this. If he can destroy a leader, he is destroying a church's testimony. He's undermining truth. Nothing Satan loves more than to see leaders fail spiritually. That would be his trap. So, a good testimony, literally, good reputation. In other words, it's something visible. Do unbelievers in your life generally respect you? I think we'd go further and say, do they like you? Now, if they don't like you because you love the Word of God and you stand for truth, that's one thing. But do they not like you because you can be a jerk? You're abrasive or, or something like that. It's possible sometimes even to, to kind of protect our reputation in church. I mean, a couple hours a week, right? So that's why I think it's important that he mentions, he, what, what do the people that know you on a daily basis at work and neighborhood and, 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 and the stores think? Because they see you maybe unguarded. How do you treat waitresses and waiters? How do you... How do you respond to the cashier when they don't give you the discount that you thought it said it's supposed to have? What's it like when you and your neighbor discuss lot line issues? This is about our reputation because our reputation affects the church's reputation. The church's reputation affects Christ's reputation in the glory of God. We began by saying that these qualities and qualifications are important because the church is important, and it is. You maybe have thought along the way, I'm not verse one. I don't really desire to be an elder, and that's okay. It doesn't mean you're less godly. Or you may have thought, obviously, this is for men. I'm not a, I'm not a man. I'm a woman. Okay. I just urge you to, to think about this list a little differently because it's not just important for the church's sake it's important for 
all relationships. So I just want to kind of close with a little bit of a checklist of maybe why each of us needs 1 Timothy 3, maybe in a little bit different way. Obviously, if you're a man, these traits need to be your goal for growth. And I say 2021 because you can't put this off, okay? When, when the Spirit of God speaks to us about different traits in our heart, we, we have to address it now. This, is, this has to be our goal for the rest of July to start this. If you're a married woman, you now know how to pray for but not criticize your husband. Because if you, as a married woman, take this list and you've kind of mentally begun to go, he, not, not that, not, he's not that, and if you know your own tendencies that you might plug those things in like little barbs in the coming weeks, just confess your sin of judging right now. This is not how you criticize him. This is how you pray for him. As a single man, don't pursue marriage if these aren't your goals, please. Just go have fun, but don't infect somebody else with your lack of character. Um, obviously, most of us get married when we're immature. The issue is, what direction are you going? Are these your goals? Because if these are your goals, marriage will be one of the best things to help you accomplish it. Because it'll, it'll shape and sharpen you. If you're not your goals, you'll destroy yourself and somebody else in the process. And if you're a single woman, any man you date needs to be growing in these traits. Is he mature yet? No. Is he going this direction? And you say, I'll change him after we get married. No. You won't change his direction. God can, but probably not you. And then finally, bring it down to teenagers too. These character traits are more important than fun and friends. Just try to take our word for it. These are the things that will jumpstart the life you really want. You probably won't know many of your high school friends a year or two later. They won't be a huge part of your life anymore. These character traits are part of your life forever. And your relationship with God is a crucial part of that. Our character shapes who we are. We as individuals are part of the church. As part of the church, we impact the world. And that's why it's so important that we be people that can be trusted. Let's pray and then Seth will come and lead us, or the music team will come and lead us. Heavenly Father, we just pray that you would reshape our priorities, that we would begin to care more about godly character than even God's blessings. Lord, you are a God who blesses, but you are seeking to shape us in the innermost parts. And we cannot bypass this step of spiritual, spirit-led, spirit-enabled character. So please direct us, O oh Father, and, and by your Spirit, help each of us to be awakened to our own heart, uh, areas of sin that you want to address so that we can better be functioning in a church so that your church can be better glorifying and impacting the world around us with your truth, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.